everybody and welcome back to On the Battlefield with me, Father Joseph Collins, and my friend, Father Michael Marcantoni, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Uh, good to be with you, Father Michael. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find us online and on social media? Of course. Hello. Great to great to be here. Always good to record. Uh, we can be found on social media. We can be found online, uh, of course, on our main platform of Anchor FM, as well as Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and on social media on Facebook and Instagram at On the Battlefield Podcast. Uh, we do get, we do read your your questions and your comments, and we appreciate them. So please send those in so we can keep this a dialogue rather than just a monologue. So Anchor FM, uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and uh, Facebook and Instagram On the Battlefield Podcast. Thank you. Perfect, bro. So let's talk this week. Last week we talked about psyops, the psychological operations that the devil uses against us. And let's progress from there and take this opportunity to head into Lent and to encourage people uh, to to have some really deep self-reflection and take this, this Lenten period to evaluate our lives and how it is that we are going to make life less neutral and how we can be more engaged in the spiritual battle and come out on top. Uh, even even monks do this. The the way their life goes throughout Lent changes. Their their daily routine changes just a bit, and it varies from monk to monk. Uh, this morning we had a men's meeting, and I was reflecting on my time on Mount Athos during Holy Week, and you could see from monk to monk how the bishop or how the abbot, forgive me, how the abbot had directed each monk to fast. Some were gaunt, which means that they looked like enfleshed skeletons, and other ones looked uh, a little chubby and healthy, but each according to the abbot and his ability to do so. Um, you know, so so let's kick it off from there, Father. I know that we had uh, game planned a little bit here, but I'll bounce it over to you and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take on this idea of not overwhelming ourselves with the needless, but busying ourselves rather with the, the useful tasks of Lent and the useful tasks of life and, and go from there. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's precisely it. You know, we come into Lent and Lent is this period within the church. It's by far, it's not the only fasting period. When you consider that we've got uh, almost every Wednesday and Friday as fasting days, 40 days leading up into Christmas, the apostles fast a varying length in June, uh, the Dormition fast the first two weeks of August. Fasting in the Orthodox Church really does take up about half of the days of the calendar year, but Great and Holy Lent uh, is the strictest, it's the most iconic fast. And so when you think about fasting and fasting periods, Lent comes to mind. And so it's this really great time to reevaluate where you're expending your energy, where you're expending your work, uh, and what is worth spending it on. And the schedule of Lent forces you to do that. Um, you know, parishes outside of Great and Holy Lent very often have primarily 
weekend only services. You know, you might have a feast day during the week, uh, more or less, depending on where, when it is in the year, but you're talking Saturday, Vesper, Sunday, or throw some liturgy, and that is the bread and butter throughout the year. But during Great and Holy Lent, you've got Great Compline on Mondays. You've got the pre-sanctified liturgy on Wednesdays. Some parishes do a second pre-sanctified Friday morning, our beloved parish, Holy Spirit, back in Rochester, back when we were still blessed to be there. Um, they did the two pre-sanctifieds and, of course, the salutations on Friday night, in addition to the Vespers on Saturday and Orthros and Liturgy on Sunday. So you can go from weeks where you've just got three services on the weekend to um, essentially doubling that. Um, and, and so in order to meet that, like we really ha- and and your fasting and in order to meet that, you have to really ask, where am I expending my energy? What is worth having in my schedule? So I came across a a, a quote. Uh, I, I, it wasn't like a famous quote or anything, but someone said it in a podcast I was listening to not too long ago. And he spoke about priests being very often, it was two priests speaking, and he spoke about pre- parish priests being very often overworked and underutilized. And the context in which they were speaking was one uh, w- was one that anybody who's worked in ministry understands, and that is... Um, you know, very often people don't have a sense of what you do. Very often people don't have a sense of all of the activity and demands that they don't see. And so it's very easy to begin to justify yourself by becoming busy with a lot of tasks that may not be what you were assigned to do. Um, you know, I know some of my brothers who are who are very fastidious about like, for instance, um, you know, editing the bulletin and the font. I mean, really, the font has to be just so, and the spacing has to be just so, and things like that. But then sermon preparation is an afterthought. Well, why? Well, because, you know, the bulletin is something that you'll, you'll print out and you'll put out and you can see it and you can show it to people and you can say, I am busy doing this. And it's tangible enough. Um, if you're feeling insecure, as we often do, that maybe the power brokers in the parish aren't pleased with you being busy with a lot of maintenance and and uh, and administrative tasks is a really easy way to justify your existence. It's not to say, it's not to say that we have no place doing those things, but it is to say that it's easier to do those things and justify your existence, and in doing so, leave so little time for genuine prayer and repentance that years can go by without really studying the scriptures or studying the fathers or really having a, a, a deep habit of prayer. We can really get our priorities off track. And I'm not criticizing my own brethren. I have had my own struggles with this. Um, I have had my own difficulties. Um, and I think it's something we all know, but I bring it up because I believe it's something that we fall into as people, as human beings in the church. It is easier to busy yourself with, uh, you know, with programs and busy work in the parish and cleaning and nitpicking uh, organizational detail within the parish than it is to study your Orthodox faith and be truly repentant of your sins and make amends with your fellow parishioners. It's easier to be fastidious about details in the house than it is to be... um, then to be attentive to your spouse and your kids where you may have to eat some humble pie because you haven't, you haven't been living your role as one of the parents or spouses the way you should. And you've got to own that, but it's easier to stay busy. 
this is a trap that we can fall into as parents, as uh, as married people, as friends, as co-workers. I mean, it's not just a priest problem. And it's an old, old issue. Um, so in the fifth, early fifth, late fourth century, St. John Cashin, um, he recorded, he was, he, St. John Cashin lived at this great time. Uh, he lived at this great time where, uh, where the, the, the split between the Chalcedonian and the non-Chalcedonian Orthodox hadn't occurred yet. Uh, and the great schism hadn't happened. So, um, whether you were East or West or in Africa, like it was just one big Orthodox world. And so he was born in Romania and he ended his life as a deacon in Rome, but he and his best friend Germanus did a road trip that I wish you and I could do. I mean, is the kind of theological road trip that could only happen in that era where they got on the road and they went to Palestine and they learned from the monks there. And the monks there said, you really need to meet the desert fathers. And they went to the Egyptian desert and spent time learning from the great masters in the Egyptian desert, the great desert monks and recording continual prayer. And then spreading that, then, then they took, he took that knowledge. And when he went to Rome with it, I mean, he brought that along with it. So anything that the Western church knew about that tradition came from him. And he lived at a time when that Christian world had not been parceled up yet. And so they could do that. Anyway, one of the things he writes about, and this is contained in the first volume of the Philokalia, he has a list of eight demons that war against the monks every day. And two of those demons were dejection and acidia. Dejection is listlessness. You, you don't have any get up and go. It's pretty straightforward. But acidia is harder to translate. And Archimandrite Zacharias, who is a Greek Orthodox monk from Essex, one of uh, Metropolitan Callistos Ware's uh, guys in England, uh, in his in Archimandrite Zacharias's book on the enlargement of the heart, he talks about acidia, and he speaks of it as a compulsive busyness that covers over a lack of concern for spiritual matters. In other words, rather than, rather than. Uh, look at my own soul rather than busy myself with prayer, busy myself with repentance as the needful thing first and foremost. It sees it, it, it masks that over with hyper productivity. It looks very productive and it's productive with a lot of really good things, which is what makes it so, uh, so tricky. It's not asking you to waste time on things that are no good. It's saying we're going to overdo the good things so that you don't have any gas left for the one thing that is needful. It is an imbalance in that sense. And Gregory the Alogos, who you know is credited with writing our pre-sanctified liturgy and was Pope of Rome, again, this is in like 561 AD, so four centuries, almost five centuries before the schism, five centuries before the schism, essentially. Um, he took that list of eight demons that were against the monks, and he combined sloth i'm sorry he combined dejection and acidia into sloth and turned it into the list of seven deadly sins and sloth doesn't describe either one of those things and i think acidia is a really great way and great ancient way of of recognizing that this temptation to become over busy overworked but underutilized you've become so busy and so productive that you've ceased to be a man of prayer a man of study 
a man of you, you don't have time for peace of soul or to be uh, a, a, an icon of Christ to your kids because you are just so over busy with all the meetings that justify your existence. And, and when it, when that is institutionalized, when we do it to our families, when we do it to our parishes, um, we lose a very deadly battle. The casualties on that are severe because then it looks like we're just a corporate machine as opposed to the body of Christ. So this temptation, right, even though I was looking at this temptation to become uh, busy with the wrong things, to be overworked but underutilized, to have a city, I was looking at that from the ministry standpoint, but it comes for all of us. And the more we good we seek to do for our parishes, the more that very real evil wars against us. And so as we go into Great and Holy Lent, and there's lots of stuff to be busy with, I thought that would be a good thing to talk about today. And the crazy thing is when when we get busy, like you mentioned the priests and our fellow brothers who get fastidious about the font and the spacing. Those are not unimportant things. Don't misunderstand. Those are important things because they show there is virtue in consistency. There is virtue in beauty. There is virtue in being busy in the kingdom. But where where the where the psyops become involved is that busyness can take us from our role of leadership and just drown us in in the sea of of things that are useful but not necessary or useful but not overly important in the moment. They bury us under things that other people could be doing because we're doing it out of uh, out of a vice, right? Like, why why is the priest the one spending two two hours on on that? Is it because no one else in the parish is detail oriented enough to do it, or is it because he wants to justify his paycheck, right? So so well, many and, times. And- yeah, and sorry to cut in, but yeah, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. You're, you're absolutely right. Don't get me wrong. A few, uh, like an episode or so ago, we talked about uh, about about precision in the little things, precision in the details, being uh, a, a path to keeping on uh, on our road. So it's not that these things don't have a place. I think the temptation is just to imbalance that and overvalue those things at the expense of the one thing needful. It's the imbalance. It is. It, it's the imbalance. And um, we have both read this book, and I will quote from it, but it, it's called Extreme Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink's book, uh, in, in his chapter called Prioritize and Execute. Uh, he says that even the most competent leader can be overwhelmed if they try to tackle multiple problems or a number of tasks simultaneously. The team will likely fail at each of those tasks, if that's what happens. So I think for me, and this is something that I've intuited in my own soul the past few months and struggling to reconcile, but I, I see in my life, I see in my prayer life, I see in my family life that that there are certain priorities that I can pick out for each day and each period of time. And that those are really important. But then there's all the little things and 
rank ordering them as to what priority needs to be done absolutely today, what can what needs to be done, what isn't a primary thing, and what can just be dropped entirely. I think I, I struggle to discern that and then to actually follow through on it. Uh, my father-in-law years ago had this vase on his on his desk uh, with large, pretty big rocks in it and then little pebbles in it. And he would dump it out and he would say, fill it up. And the only way to fill it up was to do the big rocks first and then fill in the spaces with the smaller pebbles. And he said, that's life. But discerning what the big rocks are, that's that's the hard thing, right? And I think that's where the asidia comes in, or asidia comes in to to our life is, what is the big rock that has to be done? And what is the big rock that I have to make sure gets done or the rest of the things and the rest of the team fails if I don't make sure that happens today? Well, and and the the real temptation, especially, I mean, I will say especially uh, in ministry, but in, in, I guess in a lot of different areas, the real temptation is is to get off on that, to get off the mark on that, because others are setting the wrong priorities for you. You know, it's very easy, not just it's if, if we were kind of in a bubble where we could just say, OK, I know it's important today. I'm going to do it. Um, no problem. But we, we have people in, in our families or our parishes or our businesses who don't necessarily understand the mission, don't necessarily understand how what you're doing contributes to the mission or they have their own vision of it. And you're not on the same page. And if they have the power and potential, if they have the power and potential to make your life difficult, it's very easy to busy yourself with their priorities in order to sort of uh, pacify them. And, and that's, that's a real danger. That's so it's, it's, it's not just finding it, but it's also having the star stalwartness to stay on it when your circumstances contradict that, like, you know, to, to stand in the face, and say, no, no, this is really where we need to uh, expend our, our, our energies. And, and to not be above explaining it. I mean, you know, let's not presume malice. It, it, other people may indeed have good intentions. They just don't necessarily get the mission. So it's like, this is why we're actually explaining, actually communicating comes in key. And there's several points in the gospel where Jesus almost offers to the apostles a, uh, a, a an exit if they want it. You know, especially, for example, um, at the famous Eucharistic discourse in John 5, you know, where he says, uh, where Jesus says, um, if you, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life in him. He do, who does not, does not have life in him. And my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And it says that the crowds left him. And he looked at Peter and the apostles and said, are you leaving too? I mean, they could have walked and he would have found 12 different apostles. Um, there, there's all these points where we got to check in with our team and say, we are, here's still the parameters. We still are on the same page. And that's, and, and that the bigger, the, the bigger, the group, the bigger, the organization, the harder that is. I find this to be, for example, a little easier in the smaller parishes, once again, because of the size and intimacy in larger parishes with, yeah, they have more resources, but, um, it's easier for people to have their own agendas along with those resources. And that creates this difficulty. So we, it, it becomes harder when we factor in the aspect of community 
But even God does not exist in isolation. The Holy Trinity is a life in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we must move into community, we have to be ready to face that challenge. I think that begs a question in my mind. Does that imply a lack of leadership, in your opinion? Maybe sometimes. Um, By leadership, I I mean uh, the priest along with the parish council clearly establishing within the strategic plan and mission of the church language that says this is who we are, this is where we're going, and then communicating that to the entire community, to the entire team, and persistently and consistently following through towards fulfilling the, the stated vision and mission of the church. So, you know, it, it, my question was, is it a lack of leadership if the church doesn't have a clearly stated mission plan and or is not deliberately and intentionally moving towards the fulfillment of that mission? Well, you know, it can be. It, it can be. I, I think, you know, that's the problem. The problem with making statements about leadership is there's leadership is complicated. Um, as Jocko is quick to point out, it's not as simple as saying what to do. It's also, you know, it also goes hand in hand with people's decision to follow your lead. So leadership is complicated. It can have a fault. It can be a lack of leadership. It can be a lack of vision. I, what I find happens very often is well-intentioned individuals are theoretically on board, but when the rubber meets the road, the the stress of going live and the 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 nerves of going live can win the day and suddenly they're not as on board as they thought they were it's like you know it's it's like jujitsu as is everything else i mean you know in class when you're drilling a technique with your partner and you guys are just drilling that's no problem but when the stress of going live in a competition is on you probably unless you've got 10,000 reps you're not going to execute it the same way um, so, you know, when, when you're sitting in, in the council meeting or having coffee, it, it's really easy for people to say, that's a great idea, Father, I'm on board. But when the stress of actually having to execute it is on, the follow through for many is a hurdle and a challenge. Sometimes there's no malice in that. And sometimes there's not a fault of leadership in that. It's just all of these things are way more complex and difficult than they look like they should be on paper and that's just reality when i when i look at it and i and i see myself getting busy with a lot of things or i look at other other even local parishes here in town getting busy with tons of things it looks to me like in my own life i I see that most of the time when i get super busy with a lot of stuff i'm lost and I'm just throwing stuff at the wall, hoping to see something stick. It, it, it's because I I don't have a clear focus of where I'm going or what really needs to be done. I'm getting sidetracked. I'm buying the false flags. Oh, look over there. That's important. Then you go over there. It's like, dang it, this wasn't important at all. Then you got to go back to what was important. Then there's another false flag over here. And you just get busy, 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 busy throughout the day, chasing all the demonic false flags. And you neglect the needful thing because you didn't have 
a clear and distinct understanding of what the plan was for the day and you just then you live the rest of the day hoping that something you do will be of some use somewhere and then that starts to perpetuate day after day if you don't take control if you don't take yourself off the firing line like Jocko said take a step back and lead rather than be drug along by by the insistence of of the demonic forces and the busyness of life yeah and and, and that's that that's you know that's well taken you know that's well taken i you know, i look at it and I, I look at it and um, I think where I think where it comes into is when you stop, because I want to focus on the stopping for a second, the becoming over busy and underutilized when you stop and you have to look at yourself and say, OK, well, you know, uh, am I following the false flags? Am I getting rabbit trailed? Am I, um, uh, you know, are, are there decoys being set up and I'm, I'm, I'm going on a snipe hunt in the wrong direction or are we actually tracking properly? And when you stop and you look at yourself and you realize that you've got a lot to repent for, that you've been, you know, skimping on your prayer rule for the last two months and eating poorly and not sleeping and all this other stuff, it's really disappointing. I mean, you look at yourself, you can look at yourself and be really disappointed. And that disappointment, that dejection, this is why sloth and acedia end up getting combined. You know, that dejection it's really easy to cover over that with the busyness. It's really easy to and 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 I think where I think the where I think the lack of leadership comes in is in the misprioritization of the busyness itself. Because leadership has to maintain that myopic focus on its goal. And it has to say, it has to recalibrate over and over and over, a thousand times a day, everything that's happening towards the mission. And when we start to get over busy and underutilized, we're we neglect the mission in favor of something else because it's it's busier, it's easier, it's whatever, and I, and then that's a real problem. So I and I think that's where the breakdown in leadership is. It's kind of a, a throwing up of the hands, a, a win for the dejection, and then sort of a um, a, a self soothing with just real busy work. Um, and you kind of and and once again, we really need to take a look and see that the stuff that it's going to do that with are not bad. They're not bad things. So, like the woman who wipes Christ's uh, feet with her with her hair, and it says that she broke an alabaster jar and uh, anointed his feet with costly myrrh and all of that. And Judas says, well, you know, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, the, the, the gospel writer is right to point out that he was really actually concerned with the fact that he was stealing out of the money bag. But the, that aside, if that wasn't Judas saying it, what he says is not off the mark. Like there's a lot of times where we would say that. I mean, St. Basil is the one who says um, that if we have extra clothes in the closet, they belong to the poor. He calls, the, our, he calls our excess goods robbery. He says we're stealing from the poor because we are hold, we are holding on to goods that we don't need, that they don't have. Um one of my favorite St. Basil quotes. Yeah. And I and I mean so so that's not a far cry, right? That's really not a far cry thematically from criticizing that woman for spending money on anointing his feet rather than giving it to the poor. 
Um, however, he's off the mark, right? He's off the mark. Anointing Jesus's feet is on board with the mission. It accords with the mission of we are moving towards this great messianic moment where uh, the word made flesh it, it has this eschatological battle between good and evil and conquers death on the cross by dying and then rising and emptying the tombs through the howling of Hades. Right. I mean, he is, he's doing, this is the, he, he, that is where he's headed. Everything from the fact that he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, to where he's recognizes what this good thing, this is woman does for him that no one else gets at the time. It's all because he has his eyes focused on, we've got to get to the empty tomb. Not just the cross, because as 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 St. Paul says in the epistles, if Christ has not been risen from the dead, then we are the most foolish of all men. The end game is the empty tomb and the ascension into heaven. The cross is how we get there. Anything that gets in the way of that, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's why, like, mere lines after he tells Peter, you are my rock and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, will not stop it. He also says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> he calls his be- one of his best friends, Satan. You know why? Because, well, look, if, if, if you're straying from the mission at all, I can find someone else to be the rock. <laughs> the mission's non-negotiable. That empty tomb's non-negotiable. We're headed. Um, and a city does not discern that moment. So, but the, the real, the real deadliness of it is what it will suggest is not bad. Selling that ointment and giving the money to the poor is a pretty good use of that ointment. Like, like, I mean, just objectively speaking, like if you were to look and say, we have this thing that costs a lot of money, we could use it or we could sell it and give the proceeds to charity. I mean, nine times out of 10, most people say, well, that sounds like the more Christian thing to do. But in this case, it wasn't. Well, how do you discern that? And that's where you really need to be living a life of prayer. You really need to be living a life of repentance because there will come the time when you say, you know, I really don't need that second car. We're going to sell that and give the money to the poor. And there's another time where you say, no, this is a good thing that she has done. She's done this to prepare me for the day of my burial. We're giving our best to God first and foremost as our tithe and our sacrifice. I mean, that's, that's, that's where, that's where evil is truly insidious. It suggests good things for the wrong reason. Look at that. What was suggested that, that Logismos, that, that bad thought that had a hold of Judas suggested a good thing for the wrong reason. It suggested charity for the wrong reason. And that's what the devil does. When the devil quotes, I'm very fond of bringing this up in talks. When the devil uh, tempts Christ in the wilderness, he doesn't lie, not once. He quotes messianic scripture to the Messiah. <laughs> he's got, he, he's, he's correctly identifying who the scripture is about. And he's quoting it in context. Jesus is the context, but he's inviting Christ to misappropriate and use it the wrong way. That's the trick. That's the temptation. He is trying to get him to use a good thing, to misuse a good thing in the wrong way, to suggest, to suggest good things for the wrong purpose. And we can only discern that out if we're living a life of repentance and prayer and closeness to the Holy Spirit. So we can tell whether that is a thought worth 
investing in, or it is the false flag of fake busyness and we need to refocus on repentance and the eventual empty tomb. We've said this before, two of the most common words used in describing the devil are the deceiver and the accuser, right? So so this asidia is deception after deception after deception. These These false flags of, hey, look, this is good, Judas. This is good. Don't, never mind. It's a good thing. It's okay. Um, I, I was standing uh, in a liturgy next to a monk once, and uh, there was a person with a prayer rope in their hand. And the monk said, stop praying the Jesus prayer. This is the liturgy. You're distracted. I was like, but, but, but even in, in that context, whether he was right or wrong, that's between the monk and his spiritual father and the person he said it to. But the, the, the point I took away was, is even, even in prayer, we can be distracted. That the liturgy is unto itself the greatest prayer that we pray. And, and even praying the Jesus prayer in the t- context of that greater prayer can be a deception. That even when I'm praying the Jesus prayer, when I think of my blessed grandmother, the, the beauty of my grandmother's memory and the wanting to keep her in my heart is replacing Jesus Christ in my heart and therefore becomes a sin. So it, the devil is very crafty at tossing up these these seemingly good false flags to draw us away from the real event in our lives, which is constant mindfulness of the Lord and and where we're going, which is, like you said before, our own resurrection and his glory for eternity. Um, you know, so, well, that... so the false flags that we talked about last week aren't always necessarily negative. They, can, they, they are negative, but they don't always seem negative in the time. And that sort of deception and the need for discernment on the battlefield are critical, like time-sensitive, dynamic discernment right now. And that comes through practice, you know, praying the Jesus prayer, knowing that your soul needs to be focused on Jesus Christ alone and thought of your reposed grandmother or the need of your child or something pressing at work. Like, There's no better time for me to remember all the things I need to do throughout the day than when I'm praying. I all of a sudden become very good at remembering then but throughout the rest of the day, I'm a forgetful train wreck. And these are false flags. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 uh, St. Paisius again who says that, um, that the devil does not come with his horns out, right? He comes in little steps and he seems really nice. If he came showing himself for what he is, no one would listen. No one would follow him. I mean, if, if, if evil presented itself as evil, it would only be the rare psychopaths among us who got on board. Evil is only able to deceive good people because it makes itself look good. It makes itself look righteous. Um, Angel of light. Yeah, it is deceptive. And he's got more practice being deceptive than we do at being holy. I mean, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, the, 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 another constituent, the other constituent ingredient there coming into Lent is getting your own way. Isaiah 58 uh, in Isaiah 58, Isaiah 
upbraids the nation of Israel. The prophet upbraids the nation of Israel, saying that their fat that their fasts are not currently acceptable to the Lord because during the day of their fasting, each one of them uh, each one of them insists on his own way and mistreats his servants and mistreats others around them and quarrels and fights and like it sounds a lot like during our fasting and and he tells them he says no uh, you know champion the orphan and the widow give uh, give to those in need lend a hand to those who need aid and then your fasting will be acceptable well i mean that sounds like the church fathers but it's a, it's a prophet from 7 centuries before christ isaiah in his 58th chapter and that's really the big thing here i think a big key for discerning this out is when i'm tempted when i'm tempted to you know to say well is this busyness or is this the movement of uh, of the spirit and a good thought um say well like is it getting my own way like that's a that's a it's not the only litmus test but it's a good one it's one that's pretty good to throw in the mix because like i mean look at i mean look at back to the judas example the thought of saying well we could sell, use this resource as income for charity okay well but then the gospel reader says well what was his self interest his self interest was he wants the money the the income in the money bag because he holds the money bag and he's been stealing out of it so there you go it, it, what's the self interest the self interest it's even said he didn't really care for the poor like and 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 the implication there is if he if it really was about the poor we might have something to discuss <laughs> you know um but well, I mean, even jesus says the poor are always with you but you will not always have me but at least there's something to discuss if you're really caring about the poor but he's not really caring about the poor so when we get busy with all these things and we look hyper productive and we look like we're uh upstanding contributors to church to parish society if we're really taking a discerning look in we say like well am i really is it really as good and noble and holy as I've made it appear to be? Or am I putting my self-interest front and center? And if we're leading a repentant life, we may find that we're not passing that test as well as we think. And Lent's a great time to address that. One of the weirdest things that I have to deal with in, in daily life is being so busy that I don't even take time to self-reflect. That I become so so overcome with the cares of of the day and and my daily life that those times where i i think about the lord or why i'm doing what i'm doing they don't even come or they're so fleeting that uh, my mind doesn't take the time to stop and even attempt to digest such a kernel um, how do you i mean just friend to friend how do you deal with that in your life, when when you get that overwhelmed, how do how do you rein it back in? Well, I I kind of have the opposite problem. I mean, honest with you, I I have a um, I have an overly fastidious conscience, um, to the point that it can be like neurotic, <laughs> and so the the challenge for me is not to the challenge for me is not to overdwell on things, and over guilt and over analyze like that's really the challenge i the challenge is not self-reflecting too much <laughs> like it's reining it in because i can i can i can get lost all day pouring over um you, you know what i could have should have would have done um and, and that's a real problem for me so it, it's for i i don't that's it's just it's just my own struggle looks different 
for me, the real problem is not getting lost in my head and in just that little, that little whisper. I, 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 I more often, I more often experience the devil's attacks in his role as the accuser. I, I, you know, because the guilt for something is always right there accusing me. And, and, and that's something I've, 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 I've always struggled with that. Um, it's made going to confession very easy. Um, you know, because I want to clear my conscience, even as even as a young man, and it's made it easy because I usually have a I usually have a pretty good sense of what's weighing on my heart and how to articulate it. Like I I I've, I don't think I've ever walked into confession going I don't know what to say. Like no, I know exactly why what I want to say. It's getting myself to stop saying other things that come to mind. Um, so we kind of got opposite problems, but it's really two sides of the same coin. It's because in in looking at all of that sort of hyper guilt that I'm prone to, it's also not a sober actual reflection of reality, right? Like you're, it's it's still very me focused. Uh, it still creates a dramatic narrative where uh, I'm still the cause of things, just only in the negative, and that's that's also not true. You know what I mean? So it's like on the one hand, where you're not self reflecting. Um, that's, you know, that's not true because you have things to account for. On the other hand, when you're over analytical, uh, it's not true because you're over valuing your own role. So in either case, we need nipsis, uh, which is sobriety or watchfulness. And we need to have a sober, genuine, prayerful appraisal of what's actually happening here. And that's where that's where a spiritual family is so important. I say family because not just having a spiritual father, but having your spiritual big brothers and sisters. I mean, look at us, right? Like there are times where I come to you and because you, your, your strengths and weaknesses are different than mine, you can give me some perspective that's outside of my own head. And you've done that with me. You've come to me for perspective. And, you know, that, and, and we're not each other's spiritual fathers, but we're, friends and brother priests. So you got your spiritual family. And then at the head of that, of course, your spiritual father who should know these things and help guide you there and should be seeing things that you don't see because he's a third voice and he's not in your head. Um, so I, I, I guess what I, I guess I, I didn't really answer your question because I kind of find myself just fighting a, a, a different fight on that topic. Um, but either, either way, you know, whether it's the fight you fight on that or the fight I fight on that, it's important that we're aware of it and engaged in it because, you know, one of, one of, one of the worst tactics on a battlefield is a diversion, you know, where suddenly you're, you're, you're concentrating your forces and your efforts in the wrong area and you think you're going to route the enemy and suddenly you find yourself flanked because you fell for a trap. And that's what we don't want. We don't, we don't want to fall for the trap. We don't want to fall for the diversion. We, you know, so um, just it's, you know, Nipsey's being mindful, being watchful, being sober and taking in like, no, what is reality on reality's terms? Is it pride that, that I mean, when you, when you stop and look at it, because you obviously overanalyze it, <laughs> is it, is it pride that drives you to that place of overanalyzation and feeling like this almost, um, a despairing level of guilt. What me? Um, yeah. yeah, sometimes, and it's definitely pride. I mean, um, so one one saying that comes up a lot in uh, 
in recovery circles is that alcoholics will speak of uh, themselves as egomaniacs with an inferior inferiority complex. And 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 it's and and I've noticed that to be true not just for people in recovery but for people who uh, for for all sinners you know we we we're egomaniacs the world revolves around us but then we have this inferiority complex that we cover over with our vices and our busyness and everything else so um, so for me right like having you know having the overactive guilt complex that I I tend to have that's still egomaniacal because it's all about me you know right and poor me and if i'm mired in my guilt then you got you can't deal with your pain because you got to come for me i mean it's, it can be incredibly if i if i don't rein that in and i'm not conscious of it it can be incredibly selfish on my part incredible it can be um but is there a time and place to feel appropriately guilty for having done the wrong thing absolutely that's a story of repentance so um you know, is pride in there? Sure. Pride would also be in there if I didn't have a, if I didn't have a sharp enough conscience and I just felt like I never did anything wrong. Like, nah, I'm good. It's all right. It's not that big a deal. Like that's also prideful. So um, that's why the fathers talk about pride as like the paramount vice for the mother from which all of these other evils spring, you know, and if you get rid of one pride, makes it worse because it makes you proud that you got rid of one. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a terrible snare. So, um, again, things to be mindful for, because like the Pharisee two Sundays ago, we can be very proud that we tithe and, uh, and defraud no one and keep the commandments and pray. And I mean, right. Like all of the things that the Pharisee says that he did are good things. <laughs> right he's like lord i'm not an adulterer i'm not a murderer i'm not a thief i i defraud no one i give to charity that those are all good things but he's doing them the wrong way and he's doing it for the wrong reason and his heart is in the wrong place and so it counts against him not for him so that's still pride so i guess again you know no matter what side of that battle we find ourselves on if we need to be attentive to that be watchful over that and then see it for what it is. And once we see it for what it is, you face it and you come to confession and you face it and you make your amends and you deal with it. And in dealing with that, in that struggle lies our salvation and our sanctification and our growth as Christians. And because everyone's going to have some kind of fight, that's the lesson and the example we need to give to our kids and parishioners and fellow parishioners and and, grand, and God kids and grandkids. They're like, hey, we're all going to fight something, but at least you can see me on my feet battling it out. So when you have to, when you have to fight too, you'll know that that's normal and it's okay. And that the people in my life have the experience to help me prosecute that war a little bit more successfully. So it's, it's important that we do fight and it's important that we do let other people see it so that they know where to turn when they need a battle plan. Uh, Father, I, I thank you so much for recording today. Uh, this was excellent. God bless you and your community and your family as you head into great and holy Lent. As always, keep us in our prayers. And I do want to thank everyone for tuning in. Do 
uh, do share and like and send us share and like this podcast and send us your questions and comments and let's keep this conversation going forward as we head towards the joy of great and holy Pascha. God willing, a much more normal Pascha than last year's Pascha. <laughs> and if you find yourself on either side of this battle, whether in listlessness because of just being burnt out from all the busyness or in that mode of hyper busyness, uh, we we would implore you uh, as we move into Lent and even today as you're listening, just to take a few minutes and ask the Lord to give you discernment to see to see the false flags that, that you have bought into and that you might find true and genuine repentance and in that repentance find true and genuine forgiveness, which is only brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Uh, Father, where can everybody find us? Uh, if you remind us of that, that'd be awesome. And then close us. Once again, on you can find us on Anchor FM. That is our main platform. Shares out over iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on social media, Facebook and Instagram, on the Battlefield Podcast. Uh, it's just search for on the Battlefield Podcast. You'll find us there. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube. Search for Father Michael Marcantoni. So, uh, that is where you can find all of us, and God bless you all. Thank you. All right, please um, close us with, with a prayer, Father. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, we, we thank you for having, coming, having come into the world and having given us your Holy Spirit that we could know how to discern these tactics of the devil in our life, and that by you and by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit, we can be overcomers. As we move into and through Lent, Give us discernment to see and to eradicate by your grace and power these vices that have so subtly crept into our lives in order that you may receive the glory, in order that our minds and our hearts may be tuned into you more clearly, in order that the world around us and more importantly our families and neighbors would see you and be drawn to you for your great mercy and great love. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you all, and see you in two weeks on the battlefield. Thank you.